The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button up shirts from the world famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it, and more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. I was a weird little kid. I asked for books for Christmas, Webster's Dictionary, Credence, Concordance, a thesaurus, the Oxford Book of English Mystical Verse, and etiquette books, Emily Post and Amy Vanderbilt. Now, there was a reason for this last request, and that's because I wanted to understand how to be in the world the way the people that I read about or saw from afar seem to know how to conduct themselves in every sort of circumstance. How can I be a better communicator? How can I be a more seamless participant in the social and the cultural world around me? And through that quest, I met a remarkable woman. And we're going to be speaking with her today. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you're intrigued. We're going to be talking about social graces. And can they possibly grace us into the state of being able to get along better and maybe not have quite so many confrontations about our differences so thank you for being with us today, and thank you to my guest, Jacqueline Whitmore, for being with us. I'm going to give you a little bit of her official introduction. Jacqueline Whitmore is an author, certified speaking professional, and certified international etiquette expert. In 1998, Jacqueline founded the Protocol School of Palm Beach a premier business etiquette training company. 
She has written two best-selling books, Business Class and Poised for Success. Welcome, Jacqueline. Hello, Victoria. Always lovely to speak with you. So I'm trying to remember how we met. Did I seek you out or did you find me? I think I found you. I was um, at a bookstore one day and I came across one of your books and I believe it might have been Creating a Charmed Life. And it intrigued me and I bought it and read it and did a little research on you. And I believe that um, I, I did a speaking engagement in New York City um, at the Coleman Center when my first book came out. And I believe you were in the audience and you came up to me afterwards and we spoke and you made such an impact on me that I couldn't help but remember you. <laughs> and of course I did know of you because I had read your book and I believe that was the beginning. So that was probably in 2005. So we've known each other a long time. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, it's wonderful to be speaking with you today in this context, because I am a great fan of, of your books and what you teach. And you really make this whole idea of etiquette the, the province of all of us, not just people that were born with the proverbial silver spoon. So let's talk a little bit about your backstory. Was there a silver spoon in your early childhood? Oh, I could only wish, but the answer is no. I grew up in central Florida in a small town called Haines City. And my mother was also a hairdresser. And she and my father divorced when I was four years old. And I never saw my father after that until I was 12. So essentially, I was raised by my mother and my southern grandmother. And we did not have a lot of money, but my mother provided the best she could for, for my brother and me. And I never had the opportunity that other children had around me. For example, I remember begging my mother to uh, let me take dance classes, tap, ballet, jazz. And her answer was, we can't afford it. I begged my mother to um, let me learn to play the piano because I loved music. And her answer was always, we can't afford it. So I grew up with this <laughs> scarcity mindset that just money was never abundant. And so I always wanted better for myself. And it, my mother always wanted better for me as well. And she was very supportive in many ways, but money was always... Um, it, the lack of money, I have to say, was always a concern for us and our family. And it wasn't until I, I think I was about 21 and I felt like I was completely in control of my life, which, you know, at 21, you never really are, that I felt like I could pave the way for my own um, opportunities. 
and that um, I could make something of my life. And I always wanted to be better and do better and, and, and fit in. I always wanted to fit in. I never wanted to be that kid who was different. And I know in this day and age, it's, we encourage young people to embrace their individuality. But when I was growing up, I didn't want to stand out at all. I wanted to fit in. And the only way I knew I could fit in was to get a good education, to go places, to travel, to to learn about the world. And I didn't have that opportunity until I was well in my 20s. So I never attended cotillion. I never attended private school. I never even attended my first tea party until I was in my late 20s. So when I had an opportunity to take an etiquette course, again, in my late 20s, I embraced the opportunity. It's this beautiful story, almost like a fairy tale. So some people hear the word etiquette. And they are taken back to Danton Abbey and some kind of time and place that is not ours. So what is etiquette and what does it mean in 2022 in real life for real people? My definition of etiquette is the art of knowing how to treat other people. It's being aware of how our behavior affects others. Now, if you look up the official um, title in the dictionary or definition in the dictionary, it will tell you something different. But I believe that etiquette has evolved over the years. Yes, it, it's it's rules, it's it's manners, it's 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 all of that. In fact, I think etiquette and manners are completely different. Manners is is how you treat people. Etiquette is knowing how to treat people. So it's a mindfulness, it's an awareness that we've lost because we are living in our own bubble. We are just walking around looking at our technology and we aren't paying attention to how we behave and what how our behavior affects other people. So I, I believe that's what etiquette really is is being more mindful. That is a definition that I think most people would not expect, but it really works. And, and certainly to those of us who have a mindfulness practice in our lives, to think that so often, I think if we meditate and that kind of thing, it's about self-development. It's about knowing who we are but the idea that the mindfulness can also extend to how we treat others is very cool. So it's no surprise, you can read it on every headline, that we have lost civility to a shocking degree. The things that people are willing to say to each other, do to each other, the, the almost... Um, full disregard for for others feelings the idea that when we feel offended instead of going to someone privately we very often would put that on social media for all the world to see even if it ruins another person 
this is the kind of thing that goes on every day. How did it start and how can we fix it? Well, as as the times move on, so does etiquette. Etiquette evolves with the times. So I will give you some of the culprits that I feel. What are the catalysts that have caused us to be ruder today than we were, say, 15 or 20 years ago? And I'll start with the most recent one, the pandemic. Number two, you mentioned this before, the internet technology that has played a huge role in um, incivility. The tight labor market that we're experiencing, the Me Too movement, pop culture, dress down Fridays. So we can take any one of these culprits and dive in a little deeper, but I believe it's a combination of all of these that have contributed to this rudeness that we're experiencing. And it's it doesn't seem like it's getting any better, which in my world, that means job security. <laughs> but I am really here to offer hope because I do believe that innately we are good people. People are um, good. But because of our environment, we oftentimes adopt these behaviors and patterns of what we see and what we think might be appropriate. And, and that's, that's where I think the line is skewed. We, a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And so if you weren't brought up in... Um, a household that embraced etiquette, good manners, you, you're just, you might be out there floundering, just floundering. I think, Jacqueline, that there has long been an idea that rules of etiquette were designed to be elitist, that being sure that a certain number of people, probably a large number of people, didn't know those rules, kept those people out and maintained the status of the upper classes. So this is an argument. Do you think it's valid? Well, back in, back in the day, <laughs> that was true. But etiquette is available to anyone nowadays. I mean, you can go to YouTube and type in how to set a table and the information is free. The information wasn't free back in the Victorian era. Like you said, it was um, etiquette was usually reserved for the upper classes, those who were more, uh, who had more privilege in their lives. And nowadays, etiquette is available to anyone, but someone has to want to be their best self. And that's how I think of etiquette is just being my best self. And it's not something you put on in the morning and you take off in the evening. It's, it's, it's something that requires a lot of practice, a lot of mindfulness. And 
just because you know how to wield a knife and fork doesn't mean you have good etiquette. So let me just put that out there. I would rather sit next to someone at a dinner party who did not know how to use his fork correctly, but he was kind. He, he was entertaining. He was charming. He was interested and interesting versus someone at a dinner party who knows how to use his knife and fork and knows how to hold his wine glass, but he's rude to the server. So you see, there, there's a lot to think about in terms of etiquette. So just because you have good etiquette doesn't mean that you have impeccable manners. <laughs> does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I love how you're drawing the distinction between manners and etiquette, because even though I was not brought up in a home with the formal rules of etiquette, good manners were talked about probably every day. And I can be very grateful for that. And I think anybody listening who had a mom or a grandmother or somebody talking about good manners is probably grateful for that too. I just want to ask about, is, is this idea of etiquette and, and really even manners, even practicing manners, some people I think would say, but, but it's not real. So I think, for example, we watch these congressional meetings and hearings, and we will hear someone addressed as the gentleman from Ohio. And yet, you just know that if he's being introduced by somebody from the other party, you can kind of get the subtext that it's not the gentleman from Ohio, it's this horrible person from Ohio that I wish weren't here. So I think that even with those very basic graces, we're at least kept from insults and name calling. But as an expert in the field, how do you see the value of, of having certain rules of decorum? Well, I think we need those certain rules of decorum. Otherwise, we would live in mayhem. <laughs> um, and if it was acceptable to be rude and nasty, uh, then we would be living in such a chaotic world. And we already live in a chaotic world. So I can only imagine what it would be like if we didn't have certain rules of decorum and Robert's rules of order um, that we're in a, in a meeting we're supposed to observe. So I know what you're saying, because when let's just say you're at a family gathering, let's just um, talk about what most people go through. And someone says something to you at that family gathering and it rubs you the wrong way. You have a choice. You can either snap back at that person and put that person in his or her place and feel better about yourself maybe, or you could change the subject, or you can, um, you can ignore that person. And you have, you have a choice, we have choices in how our behavior affects other people. You can either as my mentor once told me, she said, Jacqueline, Always take the high road because the low road is so crowded. So 
what separates the great leaders from the left behind? Could it be their manners? Could it be, I mean, you, you can't get to the top just on your education and your experience and your abilities. You have to have something else, something intangible, something that draws people towards you, something that makes you stand out and makes you special. What is that, what is that X factor that makes people stand out? It's not because they are rude <laughs> that they create um, harmony and leadership. It's usually something it's usually something that can't be defined. And that's the other thing about etiquette. You really can't touch it, feel it, smell it, measure it, but it's it's there. And you know it when you see it. You do. You, you know it when you see it. And I talk about personal branding a lot in my seminars. And I always say, what is your personal brand? It's what people say when you leave the room. It's what people say about you when you leave the room. I mean, open your high school yearbook and read what people wrote. I did that recently because I just had my 40th class reunion. So I got out my high school yearbook and I was reading all these comments. Or if you don't have a high school yearbook, go to LinkedIn and read your recommendations. Read what people are writing about you. What they're doing is they're defining your personal brand. They're putting it in black and white. <laughs> read your testimonials. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's intangible, but it's a feeling people have when they are around you. Do you make people uncomfortable? Do you make people comfortable? Oh, you make it seem so simple. And yet in actual practice, it seems oftentimes that it's very confusing. So gender roles are different now, certainly, than they were when a lot of the traditional rules of etiquette that most of us know about were established. So I grew up just knowing that women and girls entered elevators first, they went up the stairs first, they walked through doors before men did. And it didn't seem to denigrate either party. It just eliminated pileups in doorways. But now nobody knows what to do. A man can be rebuffed for holding open a door. And now, of course, we also recognize non-binary gender identities. It's just really confusing. What do I do at the door? It is confusing, and etiquette took a big turn after World War II when women entered the workforce, and it's not to say women didn't work prior to World War II, but after World War II, a lot of families had to uh, live on two incomes, and that's when business etiquette became um, actually, business etiquette became more popular in the 80s. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Working Girl. With I Mel did. <laughs> um, if, if, if your listeners haven't, they should go back and watch it. But I believe that it, when, when business etiquette became more popular, the etiquette rules started to change. So it wasn't based on gender or age, it was based on um, power and precedence. So for example, in the old days, 
a man would open the door for a woman. And and in social situations, that's usually still true. But in business etiquette, I have always taught that if I'm entertaining a male client, I will certainly open the door for that male client. I will pay for that male client because that client, it doesn't matter if it's a male or a female, that's my client. And so social etiquette is different from business etiquette. But now that gender roles are becoming more benign and a little bit more obscure, if that's the right word, I may not be using the right word, but um, everyone wants to be treated equally. And I understand that. And that's a good thing. So I always say that if you'll never go wrong being polite to someone, but if let's say a man pulled a chair out for me and I said to him, oh, I can get my own chair. Well, how do you think that makes him feel? Now I've uh, put him down, I've shut him down. And if I do it in public, that's even worse. So that's where I believe that if, if someone does something nice for you, regardless of their gender, just say thank you. They're being, they're trying to be polite. <laughs> so I think we oftentimes get so wrapped up in this political correctness. For example, I was just in Mississippi last week speaking to a group and a man came up to me after the seminar and he said, Jacqueline, I'm a hugger. And I sometimes feel that the women that I hug, they don't like it. <laughs> and I said, well, you're from the South. And I see that a lot with men in the South. They do like to hug. And women from the South like to hug. Not all, but you have to be you have to read the room, read, you have to know how to read other people. And that can't be taught. That's something that you're either born with or you're not born with. And so, as I said, etiquette is situational. So you'll never go wrong with a handshake, but a hug might be crossing the line with some people. Well, even the handshake, Jacqueline, post-COVID, I thought we would never go back to shaking hands after going through this pandemic. I know they were trying to do the elbow bump for a while. I don't know why we don't adopt the beautiful namaste uh, closed palms that they use in India, Nepal, and, and that part of the world. So even if something as benign as a handshake, you just don't know whether it's proper anymore or not. You don't know, but I will say the handshake is coming back. And I I see that in the seminars where I teach. I see people shaking hands a lot. And, and I, I was a little cautious at first when I went out in public and someone shook my hand for the first time. When First of all, I never really missed the handshake. I'm going to just be honest. I never missed it. In fact, I think we were all um, healthier. However, I understand the meaning of a handshake and the importance of a handshake. But now I see it coming back. And that's where it's a little bit difficult 
for me to tell people what to do. But I, I will say, if, if someone doesn't want to shake your hand, don't be offended. Don't take it personally. Just put your hand back by your side and move on. It's okay. Because some people may never go back to handshaking again. And that's their prerogative. Well, let's just break this down into some specific situations and start maybe where people are the least civil with social media. So how can we participate there in a courteous way? (laughs) Well, or how can we not participate? Sometimes that's the answer because um when you're when you're on social media the the point of being on social media is to be social is to interact with people and to connect with people that's what it was designed for but now people some people use it as a platform to air their grievances to share their political views to talk about their intimate personal life and so if you're not interested in hearing or reading what other people have to say you have a choice you can get off of social media you can take a break from it you can move on to something more professional like linkedin so we all have choices but we can't control the behavior of others we can only control our own behavior. So that's that's my best advice. Okay. So let's move on to business etiquette. And actually, social media intersects with business so much these days as well. I, I often think that if I weren't out in the world uh, trying to make the world better and, and um, talk about what I do, that I would either not be on social media at all, or I would be on it 98% less. I am there for, for my work, but beyond social media, those of us who, who work in the world need to know a few things. So what can you tell us about office and increasingly home office and online interactions? Well, the first thing I would tell you is Everything you put out on social media can be tracked, it can be copied, it can be forwarded. So when I'm teaching the Gen Zs, I always say, don't post anything on social media you wouldn't want your grandmother to read. (laughs) I mean, the things that I see um, people post, and I know you've seen it too, it's it's just mind-blowing. So, but like you, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, we have to be on social media to some extent, because out of sight is out of mind. So we can only control what we post. And again, it goes back to your personal brand, what you put online, and how you respond in an email is a reflection of your personal brand. It's just in a different form. So I see um, a lot of people in fact, I just hear this is a, this is another survey that w- was sent to me, and this was printed in globalnewswire.com. 76% of employees get more distracted on video calls versus in-person meetings. Well, when we started going on um, 
Microsoft Teams and Zoom and these other platforms, we we didn't even know what to do. We didn't know how to use our manners. And at least with uh, social media, I mean, if you write something and uh, <laughs> if you if you say something and it's not well received, you know it. But with some of these video calls, if you do something distracting, people won't necessarily tell you. So um, it's there are just so many questions out there. In fact, when the pandemic hit, I used to get a lot of calls from the media about Zoom etiquette. I had never used Zoom before the pandemic. I didn't have the answers, but I had to make them up. I couldn't go to my etiquette library and look in Emily Post or Amy Vanderbilt and search for Zoom etiquette. It did not exist. Uh, since social media has evolved, of course, you can go to Emily Post and there's a whole section on do's and don'ts. But there are a lot of etiquette rules out there that exist that people don't know about, like how you conduct yourself during a video call. Well, just tell us some of that. How, how does one conduct oneself during a video call? Well, let me just share with you really quickly uh, what this survey said. And this is very, um, th this is very interesting. It said that 72% um, of employees turn off their camera while on a video call to hide something that they're doing, including looking at their phone, 65%, having a conversation with someone else, 47%, looking at social media, 44%, making a drink or food, 42%, sleeping or dozing, 20%, vaping or smoking, 17%. And one they did not mention in this list that I have seen is driving. I've seen people on Zoom calls driving and trying to sit be part of a meeting. So what do you do during a video call? If you're if you've been invited to a meeting, treat it like an in-person meeting. Show up, be engaged, ask pertinent questions, no cross-talking, be on time. I just say treat it as if you are in a face-to-face -face meeting. Now, if the host requires you to turn off your camera, that's one thing. Put yourself on mute so people don't hear your dog in the background or you munching on your potato chips. Don't eat on camera. <laughs> Don't drink alcohol on camera. Please clean up your background, make your bed, uh, hide your dirty laundry. Don't sit there in your pajamas. I mean, we, we have seen so many things on video calls that I never thought we would ever see, but now uh, people are starting to get the hang of it and, and they're starting to realize that they need uh, the right lighting and all of that. But Two and a half years ago, no one knew what to do. And we have learned. And <laughs> that's good because there's a certain flexibility and pliability to human nature. So bless our hearts. We're getting the hang of quite a bit of stuff. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly 
brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The last thing you want to hear when you need your auto insurance most is... Thank you for calling. Please listen to your list of 46 possible service options. Which is why when you choose USAA Auto Insurance, you'll get great service that is easy and reliable. 24-7 online service for claims, access to roadside assistance, and more. All at the touch of a button. Start getting the service you deserve. Get a quote today. Ability to receive a quote depends on membership eligibility. Membership eligibility and product restrictions apply and are subject to change. USAA means United Services Automobile Association and its affiliates, San Antonio, Texas. So Jacqueline Whitmore, etiquette expert, talk with us a little bit about our behavior out in the world, on the street. So I was raised to smile, nod, say good morning, acknowledge my fellow humans in some way. But in big cities, like where I live, we're being advised not to make eye contact because if someone is unbalanced, possibly prone to violence, that simple act could set them off. What do we do? I am old school and I still say good morning. Now in New York City, you can't possibly say good morning to every single person you pass in the street. There are literally hundreds and thousands of people. That's a different situation. But in my little hometown where I live now, Mount Dora, Florida, <laughs> I say good morning to my neighbors who are walking their dog or who are checking their mailbox because I live in that kind of town. So I can't say to you, Victoria, when you go out on the subway to look everybody in the eye and say good morning. That's but you know what I can say is this, let's say you do go into a deli and someone does hold the door open for you or allows you to go in front of them in the line, you can smile and say thank you because that's a more intimate environment. Or you go into a coffee shop and someone um, allows you to sit down where they've been sitting and that kind of thing. That's that's a more manageable, intimate environment. So I think that those are the places where you can best demonstrate your, your good manners versus on a busy city street in Chicago or San Francisco or New York. Got it. And I, I love that. And I love the interactions with strangers, uh, particularly with dogs. That is a great thing about walking with a dog. It's a conversation starter, and it really shows you the humanity of uh, fellow humans. So I want to ask you about clothing, Jacqueline. If anything is left that resembles a dress code, and again, I'm sounding like one of those old people that says, and when I was a child, but when I was a child, we had school clothes, play clothes, party clothes, 
and church clothes and you knew what was what you, you even knew how to behave based on which clothes you were wearing so by 2019 we had pretty much reached super casual just about all the time but since the pandemic I mean, with everything online, we can't even be sure that the person that we're having a business meeting with is wearing pants. So is dress for success a completely outmoded concept? Well, I, I agree. It's it, it, But it started before the pandemic. It started in the 80s with Dress Down Fridays when you would walk into a bank and the teller was wearing a T-shirt and blue jeans and the T-shirt wasn't tucked in and the hair was disheveled. It, there, there have been studies that say when you dress up, you tend to act uh, a little bit more well-mannered. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I do know when I was a flight attendant that if we had a vacant seat in first class, the lead flight attendant would tell us, uh, the other flight attendants, to go find someone in the back who was dressed well, and we would upgrade that person just because they were dressed well. <laughs> now, is that fair in today's world? I don't know, but that's the way it was when I worked for Northwest Airlines. So I do believe people, I, 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 there's a certain amount of people who do want to dress for work because they're tired of wearing their yoga pants. They want to get out and, and dress up a little bit. And then there are those who are hybrid workers who work from home part-time and who work in an office part-time. And they don't necessarily have two separate wardrobes, but I would say this, um, and I, I taught a class recently for a power company here in, um, in South Florida, and I was not, I was instructed not to talk about uh, dresses for women or makeup for women the planner told me, the meeting planner told me, she said, you know, you can, I don't want you to tell women to wear dresses. And I don't want you to tell the men not to wear dresses. Um, we're trying to be all inclusive here at our company. And we want to embrace individuality. I'm not allowed to tell people not to have visible tattoos because a tattoo could have a religious meaning. So the dress for success portion of my seminars <laughs> have changed dramatically. So I take my lead from the company. I first ask them if they have a dress code, which rarely do they ever. And then I say, well, what, what, uh, what can I say that would include everyone? We have to embrace everyone and include everyone and and appreciate and respect everyone and respect everyone's differences but you can do it in a polite way without degrading someone or making them feel lesser than so my job has become more complex it certainly sounds like it and it sounds like you're navigating it beautifully i guess when i think about the clothing thing We've talked so much about manners and etiquette in terms of how we relate to other people, but doesn't some of it also have to do with self-respect? So maybe we are wearing yoga pants. I think I wear yoga pants 98% of the time. 
these days. And yet they can be clean and you didn't sleep in them. And your your top is is nice and attractive and isn't frayed at the edges. It's, it's just this idea of caring enough to present oneself well in whatever context that is. It can be jeans and a t-shirt, but there are jeans and a t-shirt versus jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's the message that I I have to convey in my Dress for Success seminars that there's a difference between getting dressed and dressing up. And when I say dressing up, I mean dressing for not your own comfort, but your client's comfort. And it's, it's again, it goes back to being mindful. If you're going to, if, let's say you're in marketing and your client is an attorney, you want to dress for that attorney. I always say you dress for the job you want, not necessarily the job you have, but it all comes back to the basics, being neat, tidy, clean, well-groomed, and not looking disheveled or like you don't care because not only do you represent yourself, but you're representing your company as well. So that's where I think it comes down to self-respect. Jacqueline, you so brought me back. As soon as you said attorney, you reminded me of a story with my daughter. She was seven years old and I needed to see an attorney about something. And I put on this blue kind of gingham dress with sort of puffy sleeves. And I think it had a little um, ribbon belt. And I said to her, well, how do you think I look? And she was being very diplomatic. She said, you look pretty, mommy, but I don't think a lawyer would like it. And this little girl who had just been observing the world was telling me that, you know, that's fine for Sunday in the park, go out for lunch at a casual restaurant. But when you're going to see a lawyer, you need a jacket or something that is just a little more lawyer-like. <laughs> so from the mouths of babes. Yes, yes. I think that, wow, what a wise little girl. I remember my first job interview at a college, one of my first, and it was for a big hotel chain in New York City. And I grew up in Florida where everybody wears white and lighter clothing and so forth. And I went to Casual Corner. I don't know if you remember that store. That was back in the 80s. And I went, walked in and I bought this uh cream colored tweed suit and cream colored hose and cream colored shoes with bows. And I stepped off the plane in Manhattan and all I could see was a sea of black. <laughs> and I was no more than 21, 22 years old. And I did not know what I did not know. And I thought I looked good, but I just had no clue. But needless to say, I did not did not get the job. Maybe that wasn't the reason. But anyway, I always say when I'm teaching seminars to young people is put some thought into your, your clothing and, and what you're wearing and 
I remember interviewing for Northwest Airlines and I showed up at a big hotel in this big ballroom and I was the only person in 300 people who dressed like a flight attendant that day. I wore the dark suit and my hair up in a bun and the dark black shoes and I got hired out of 300 people. I was one of three who got hired and I have to say it was probably because I put some thought into my my attire. Jacqueline, you put thought into everything you do, and that is why I am crazy about you. So listeners, you can find Jacqueline at etiquetteexpert.com. She is on Facebook at Jacqueline Whitmore and on Instagram at Jacqueline Whitmore. And I will put all of this on the show notes at victoriamoran.com. So do take a look there. And finally, just as we wind down, Jacqueline, I know that in addition to your work in the business world, your work in the world of, of etiquette, you have a spiritual life. And I really think at the core of everything, this desire that we have to be the best people we can be is at the root of it. So just tell us a little bit about your spiritual life and how it influences your day-to-day life. Well, growing up in the South, I was raised Southern Baptist. And so when I um, got old enough to make decisions for myself, I developed this keen sense of curiosity about all different kinds of religions. And I remember in college, I would visit a Catholic church or a Presbyterian church or a Jewish synagogue. And I just had an appetite to learn more about other religions and faiths. And and then as I got older, I started reading a lot of self-help books, a lot of um, Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer and Louise Hay. I mean, you name it, all the, the self-help gurus. And, and then as I got even older, I started uh, traveling more and I started going to Asia and I have been to China five times in Japan and Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand. And I developed this interest in Buddhism because I thought, oh, this is this is a wonderful way to live. And then I was introduced to the Vedanta philosophy when I went to India several years ago. And I even uh, attended a retreat at the Vedanta Institute in India and spent a week learning all about that and, and developing my intellect. And it was fascinating. So I've just always had a curiosity for other faiths and other beliefs. And I appreciate everyone's uh, point of view. I don't uh, disagree with the Southern Baptists. I, I, that's, Fine, but for me, I've always just um, felt comfortable with treating others the way they want to be treated. I mean, it seems pretty simple and basic, but that's my foundation. Um, am I perfect? No, <laughs> my own best student. I believe that I I probably gravitated towards the field of etiquette because I needed it the most or I felt like I needed it the most and I'm still learning and I'm still curious 
but I appreciate um, diversity and diverse interests and values and all of that. So that's, that's my belief. I appreciate you. And you know, it's interesting. We knew each other for many years before I had any idea that you had this interest in Vedanta, which is a huge interest of mine as well. So it's it's interesting what we share with people and what we kind of let age uh, until it's the perfect vintage. And then we share that too. So it's wonderful to know you for a long time and know more about you all the time. So thank you. Jacqueline Whitmore, etiquette expert and my good friend. So tell us what you have coming up. You have some um, seminars and retreats for November and beyond. Well, I all of my courses now are online because of the pandemic. I had to pivot and redesign my business and reinvent myself as many of us did. And so I'm always hosting online seminars and master classes, and I still go out and speak to corporations. I love that. That's what fuels me. And so if anyone is interested in signing up for my free newsletter at etiquetteexpert.com, they will get um, notifications every time I have these online classes. Wondering also tips. You're very generous about sharing some of these things even before people sign up for the seminars. So I appreciate that a lot. So usually at the end of this podcast, I have a little bit of time that I just hang out with the, <laughs> the listeners and talk about what's coming up and what's going on. And in all honesty, we're taping this several weeks out. And so by the time this airs, I'm not altogether sure what is going to be coming up. So I'm just going to leave it today with um, a thank you to Jacqueline Whitmore, a very sincere thank you to you for listening. Bless your heart. If you like what you hear here, please join our Facebook listeners group, Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners, and then you can make comments and give input and let me know more of what you would like to hear here. And if you like what you're hearing and you feel like giving us a nice five-star review on the platform where you listen, we would appreciate that a great deal. But you know what? You are appreciated no matter what. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Now, go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at MainStreetVegan.com. What is it you really want in life, no matter what you've been through? you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation 
and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. 